Mark Few had the cojones to go play at Rupp Arena in the middle of a tough season, and his team rewarded him with the biggest win of the year. You are Locked On Zags, your daily podcast on the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What is going on, y'all? Welcome to the Locked On Zags podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm your host and longtime Gonzaga podcaster, Andy Patton, here to bring you news and updates on all things Zag athletics. Today's Monday edition of Locked On Zags is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high-stakes wager for your small business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs helps find the right people for your team faster, and they do it for free. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash lockedoncollege. Terms and conditions apply. It is Mailbag Monday, and it is a joyous, joyous day here on the Locked On Zags podcast. The Gonzaga Bulldogs secure a mammoth monumental, critical, crucial, whatever word you want to use, victory over John Calipari and the Kentucky Wildcats at Rupp Arena on Saturday afternoon, 89-85. We got so much conversation about this game. We're just going to get directly into these mailbag questions. This first one comes from Austin via Discord. Austin says, finally, that quad one win we have been waiting for, and it was a big one. Do you think that cemented an at-large bid? Still a lot of work to do, but feeling like that at least gives them some breathing room. Yeah, it gives them breathing room. I don't like to use the word cemented because in my mind, the only way you can cement a bid is if you could lose every single one of your remaining games and still make the NCAA tournament. That is very clearly not true for Gonzaga. Arguably, it is only true for like five teams in college basketball. I get that's a tiny bit pedantic, but for Gonzaga, they still need to take care of business. Their bid is not cemented. If they lose to San Francisco or St. Mary's or certainly both, and then lose to St. Mary's in the WCC Championship, I still don't think they make the tournament. But this was a huge win. It gives them breathing room. It puts them in a position where they are not quite at that WCC or bus stage. They're still very close. The wiggle room isn't necessarily there, but this game would have eliminated that entirely had they lost. Fortunately, they did not. And now they have a little bit more breathing room, but they still got those two big games coming up at the end of February, early March between uh, San Francisco and St. Mary's. Still got to take care of business there if they want to put themselves in a position where they don't have to win that championship game in Las Vegas. Next question comes from Christian via Gmail. Christian says, is this the catalyst the Zags need to jump jumpstart a big push to the big dance? Uh, Jeff via Gmail asked a similar question. He said, earlier this season, St. Mary's won a massive road game at then number 16, Colorado State. That seems to have been the spark that ignited them. Could the win at 17, Kentucky, be the same type of spark for Gonzaga that ignites the Zags the rest of the year? Do we have to see? I hope so. You hope so. We all hope so. That's the case uh, in this situation. It's what we wanted to see from Gonzaga. It's why I was so happy, and, and many of you were so happy, that Gonzaga was willing to play this game in February. And, and Kentucky, too. We don't leave John Calipari out of this. He was willing to play this game in February, and it was a risk for him to do. And it has not paid off for Kentucky as they take their third straight loss at Rupp Arena, something that has literally never happened in the history of that arena's existence. But for these two teams to be willing to do this, this is what we hoped would happen. This was the best case scenario was that, I mean, the best case scenario is that Gonzaga was not in this treacherous position coming into the game, but the best case scenario was that this game would be a win for Gonzaga and it would 
bump their momentum going into the end of the season. That's exactly what Mark Few wanted this game to do. That's what we as fans wanted, was that moving this game to February would allow Gonzaga to, to pick up some momentum with a big game, with a potential big win, and carry that into March. It's exactly what happened. You could not have drawn it up any better. Having said that, there's a long gap between Gonzaga's next big games. They have momentum right now, but that momentum is rolling into games against LMU, Pacific, and Portland. Three teams that they have already handled this year. They played poorly against Pacific, but they're not good. LMU and Portland were two of their biggest wins. So they have momentum coming into three games that they didn't really need momentum for. After that, that's when they get Santa Clara at home. That's when they get USF and St. Mary's on the road. Those are going to be the challenges. So they have momentum now, but can they? Can that momentum carry them all the way till those games? That's what we need to find out. Next question, another one here from Austin via Discord who says, was this game more about Gonzaga being hot or Kentucky not? This game was about coaching. Mark Few outcoached John Calipari dramatically by a significant amount. You ask Gonzaga fans, they'll probably say the same thing. They may be a little bit biased, but they'll agree. You ask neutral fans, they'll probably be a little bit more neutral. But if you ask Kentucky fans, they're going to overwhelmingly agree that Mark Few outcoached John Calipari because He's a great recruiter. Cal is a great recruiter. He's not a good X's and O's coach. And it showed in this game. It showed the last time these two teams played when they couldn't figure out how to utilize Oscar Shibway and Gonzaga just crushed them in the mid post. In this game, the book on Gonzaga is well known. Go under on the screens, pack the paint, double team the bigs as soon as they touch the basketball, make Gonzaga beat you from the three-point line. Cal probably didn't do that. They continued to let Gonzaga run their ball screen actions. They got wide open looks under the basket because of it. Yeah, Ryan Nemhard played a great game and made good reads, but Kentucky didn't make it hard on Gonzaga at all. Cal didn't use a timeout in like the first 39 minutes of gameplay. I think he only used one in the first like 39 minutes of the game. He wasn't trying to stop momentum. He wasn't making very big adjustments. He didn't play arguably their best player in Rob Dillingham for like huge chunks of the second half. He continued to roll the big men out there when they were getting crushed on the boards and not doing anything defensively. It was a bad coaching game by John Calipari. Flip side, Gonzaga executed. They knew their game plan. They came in, they got it done. When Graham E.K. was on the bench and they needed Braden Huff to step in, he did it. This team executed. It was a very good job of coaching by Mark Few, but it was also the players executing. Whereas on the other side, Kentucky didn't seem to have a good grasp on their game plan, whether that's coaching or players, hard to say, but they didn't execute whatever that game plan was, and they didn't make enough adjustments in-game. Even when they did make their comeback, Gonzaga was still able to, to take them to, to a victory. Next question here from Jeff via Gmail. He says, could the performance of Huff have been the key to Gonzaga's victory over Kentucky? It was great to see him have a great game against a high-level opponent. On that same note, Jackie Daytona on Discord asked, who was your favorite player to watch during the game? Who do you think most improved? And who was the key to pulling out the W? Yeah, we're talking Braden Huff right now. Braden Huff, phenomenal, phenomenal performance from him. This is what we've needed to see. Braden has done this against... Eastern Oregon, against Portland, against teams in the SWAC conference. He has proven he can be a dominant low post offensive player against bad teams. That is what he has proven definitively. He can score around the basket with both hands. He's a good offensive rebounder. He has great touch around the rim. He has the ability to space the floor and shoot threes. He has proven all of that primarily against not good opponents. But he's struggled in bigger games. Sometimes in bigger games, he looks good offensively, but bad defensively. 
this was the first game where he really looked like he fully belonged on the floor, on both ends of the floor, against a marquee opponent. And he did it on the road at Rupp Arena. Magnificent stuff from Braden Huff. He still has issues defensively. He's still got caught in some switches. He still is going to get bodied by bigger, more physical guys like he did against Mitchell Saxon and St. Mary's. But again, going back to the coaching conversation, Calipari and the, and the Wildcats, couldn't they couldn't figure out how to take advantage of that. They didn't exploit... Uh, Gonzaga's mismatch by getting Huff in space and getting, you know, if Rob Dillingham was attacking Braden Huff in the, in the pick and roll, they would have had to pull Braden Huff, but they weren't doing that. And they weren't figuring out how to just muscle around him and stop him and, and get, you know, get the ball to a Visich or Bradshaw or somebody on the block and let them go to work. They didn't do that. So Braden wasn't exposed defensively in this game, which allowed him to play more minutes, which allowed Gonzaga to rest Graham Ike with his four fouls, which allowed them to, to maintain that lead uh, build back the lead that they'd lost in the second half and continue to victory. It was hugely important for Gonzaga that Braden Huff be able to stay on the floor for that amount of time. I think Mark Few would have been fine with Braden just not causing problems for five minutes while they rested Grammy. K. I genuinely believe that would have been considered a good performance from Braden Huff by Mark Few. Not only did he do that, he also contributed in a big way offensively, gave Gonzaga back the momentum that they had lost, and was the major catalyst catalyst to a victory in this game. The last part of this question that I didn't touch on was my favorite player to watch. Certainly could say Braden Huff, but I will also toss out Ben Gregg. What a game. What a game from Ben Gregg. The energy, the enthusiasm, the hustle, uh, the, the huge steal at the end of the game, the free throws, like... Just a, a magnificent performance from Ben Gregg. And in fact, we're going to talk more about Ben Gregg because we got a mailbag question about if Ben Gregg's move into the starting lineup is Mark Few's most impactful midseason adjustment ever. We're going to tackle that and more coming up after a word from today's sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find the quality professionals that are right for your role. And that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs, which has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and they do it for free. LinkedIn is not just another job board. They have a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire and gives you access to professionals that you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all this while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is really easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to, to make the process even easier. They recently launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker and more efficient. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. If you want to join them, post your job for free at linkedin.com slash locked on college. That's linkedin.com slash locked on college to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Right, folks, segment two, still Andy Patton, still Locked On Zags podcast, and we are still answering Mailbag Monday questions here, coming off that big old win for Gonzaga over Kentucky on Saturday afternoon. Question here comes from Big Head Corbin on Discord, who says, do you think moving Ben Gregg to the starting lineup is the most impactful in-season lineup change in the Mark Few era? Normally with a question like this, I would say we have to kind of wait and see, figure out, you know, how does it play out for the rest of the year? Does Ben Gregg, you know, lead them to a, a lead eight appearance? Like those kind of things change the dynamic of this question. Having said that, I'm going to say probably not for one key reason. The 2020-21 season, 16 or so games into the year, Mark Few made a lineup change where he 
in, inserted Andrew Nemhard, who had only learned he was going to be eligible to play that season like five days before the first game of the year, inserted Nemhard into the starting lineup, brought Watson off the bench. Watson had started the first 15 games of that year. At that point, Gonzaga then had their small ball lineup where they started Jalen Suggs at the one, Andrew Nemhard at the two, or reversed them, whichever. There were the two guards there, Joel Yai playing the very small three, and then Corey Kispert at the four, with Drew Timmy, of course, at the five. That lineup with Watson coming off the bench to kind of give them a jumbo lineup, pushing Kispert down to the three. That lineup is what really pushed Gonzaga forward. It's hard to judge because they didn't lose a game with the first starting lineup. They didn't lose a game at all until, of course, they played Baylor in the national championship. So it's hard to say how much of an impact that made, whereas this lineup change very clearly changed things for Gonzaga. They got better just visibly from watching it. They got better from the metrics. Everything shows this team is better with Ben Gregg in the starting lineup and Dusty Stromer coming off the bench. So I do think that this is absolutely in that conversation as most, if not the most impactful. We have to see the full results of how the rest of the season goes, but making a mid-season starting lineup change in a season where you didn't have a loss and then you don't lose again until the national championship, it's really hard to not have that at the top of the list. We'll also acknowledge another big one. Uh, this one was injury-based, but Admon Gilder went down with a small injury. Joel Eiei replaced him in the starting lineup. Gilder came back and started coming off the bench. That was in the 1920 season. We obviously didn't get to see an NCAA tournament that year, unfortunately, but that was a, another change that I think had a big and positive impact on Gonzaga going forward. Next question here comes from Jeff via Gmail. Jeff says, it looks like Gonzaga has figured out how to manage a limited rotation without having exhausted players at the end of the game. Is it as simple as Greg moving into the starting lineup, Huff's level of play improving, and Krinovich being healthy and available, or is there more to it? Well, I wouldn't really call three separate things all conflict, like three different things all combining together uh, simple. That to me does not feel simple at all, that in order for their rotation to be better, all those things had to happen. Greg moving into the starting lineup was a massive addition, not only for the fact that Ben has played extremely well, that he can play the three capably in a way that makes this whole team more difficult to defend. It has also improved the play of Dusty Stromer, less pressure on him. We've seen him improve in that regard. He didn't play great against Kentucky, but the the, the fact that they didn't need him to is, I think, part of the proof that, that this has been a positive move for them. Uh, Huff obviously has continued to improve. He's been a big part of the team since literally the first game of the season, though, so that's not a huge difference. Uh, defensively, he's still making some improvements. Kranovich coming back has certainly helped. He played a little bit in the first half of this game. I'm happy to see Mark Few honoring what he said, which is I'm going to play him in, in spots to give our guards some rest, and he's ready to do that, and he has been able to do that. I think that those are all the main factors, but yeah, I don't think it's as simple as those three things all happening. I think all those things needed to happen for Gonzaga to be in this spot. I also think the team's just more comfortable playing with each other. Freshmen get better as the year goes on. This team only had three players who'd really ever played together uh, before coming into the season. So I think just more comfortability has allowed them to not play as strenuous and which has allowed them to not be as exhausted at the end of games. Next question here comes from Christian. Christian says, are people sleeping on Anton Watson as a top three candidate for WCC player of the year? Shouldn't complete stat lines and defense be considered as well? I'm not paying attention to what people are saying about the WCC player of the year race. I'm just not. So I don't know if Anton Watson is being disrespected. He should be a top candidate right now. I think the overwhelming favorites are going to be players on St. Mary's. Typically, the reason Gonzaga almost always wins the player of the year award is because they win the conference. If St. Mary's wins the WCC by two plus games, the WCC player of the year will come from St. Mary's almost assuredly. 
It will either be Aiden Mahaney. It could be Augustus Marcellonis. Perhaps that would be a bit of a shocker uh, based on how he played at the start of the season, but he's been very good in conference play. But that's kind of the thing. It's going to probably be a St. Mary's player if they win the conference. For Gonzaga, it could be either Graham E.K. or Anton Watson. Graham has the more obvious stats, more points per game, more rebounds per game, more 20-point games, more 10-rebound games, that kind of stuff. I think Anton Watson is arguably the most valuable player in the in the WCC. It's hard to argue against that to me. He's the most valuable player to Gonzaga in terms of his offensive and defensive contributions. Uh, and Gonzaga is, I think, right up there with St. Mary's as the best team in the conference. Jonathan Mobo has a very legitimate case at San Francisco as well. I don't want to exclude him from this conversation. If Anton Watson is not being talked about as a top five, top three candidate, then yes, he's probably being disrespected. But ultimately, it's probably going to come down to somebody at St. Mary's. I don't know that Watson's going to have a super realistic chance of winning this award unless Gonzaga clips them at the end of the year. Uh, and he has a monster run for the next month. Next question comes from Zaga Observer on Discord, who says, agree or disagree, the single most impactful development for Nolan Hickman would be to add 10 or 15 pounds of muscle to his frame. I love Nolan's game and hate that he takes such heat. However, he is a junior and he's not getting any taller, quicker, or bouncier. Is it time for him to bulk up to improve his finishing around the rim? I think it's up to somebody else to make determinations on a player's how much they should gain weight to build muscle. It's easy for us to see some of those things from here, but there's just a lot of factors that we don't know whether he is attempting to gain weight and unable to do so, whether it slows him down to the point where it makes him less effective at other things. Like there's just a lot of factors that teams pay people a lot of money and strength and conditioning to, to deal and athletic training to kind of deal with some of that stuff. Overall, I don't think that this is a huge concern for Nolan. He's in part because I think, Finishing around the rim is less about strength. It's important, but it's also just finesse. It's learning how to do it. And Hickman has gotten better. His percentage around the rim has improved this year. His his ability to get to the free throw line, he's taking and making more free throws than he ever has in his Gonzaga career. He is better at getting to the free throw line. He is better at finishing around the rim. He is the best three-point shooter he's been in his career. Do I think a slightly stronger Nolan Hickman, if nothing else changed, would be impactful for him? Yes. I do not disagree with that, but it's hard to know. We're also talking about a player who is playing 35 minutes a game. Like you can't ask him to gain weight. I mean, players lose weight during the season all the time. It would be an off season thing. And yes, if we're talking about the off season, sure. If he was able to do that, perhaps, but he'd probably lose all that weight throughout the season. Anyway, most players do because regularly playing high level college basketball is really hard and you end up losing weight. It's pretty consistent. So I don't know that this makes as big of a difference as it might seem like it would on paper, uh, but I do think his ability to finish around the rim and get to the free throw line, which has improved is a vital part of his effectiveness for this Gonzaga team. Next question here comes from Jeff. Jeff says, against Kentucky, Gonzaga only made one three in the second half and four in total. They only attempted three in the second half. Could this be the result of how Kentucky was vulnerable to Gonzaga's play, or are they figuring out how to win games without being that great from deep? Well, yeah, it's both. They figured out how to win this game without being very good from deep, in part because Kentucky's defense was vulnerable to how Gonzaga plays. Both things are true. I don't think it's a sign necessarily of anything going forward because they're just going to play teams that have different style. I mentioned at the top, Kentucky's inability to pack the paint and force Gonzaga to beat them over the top was, I thought, a coaching error on John Calipari's part. And I thought Gonzaga took advantage by attacking relentlessly on the pick and roll and trying to get into the rim and get into space and find the low post players in EK and Huff. And I, I think they did plan to not use the three-point line very much because they knew. I mean, the statistics, the metrics indicate that 
same or same as Kentucky is terrible at defending the pick and roll. They, they've been bad at it all year long. So Gonzaga said, we're just going to attack that way and we're not going to rely on the three point shot. And they didn't have to. Kentucky should have made them do that. They should have tried to make Gonzaga beat them over the top. Every other team, Portland tried to do that. And it didn't work because Portland doesn't have nearly the athletes or overall talent as Kentucky. But they went in with that strategy because they know that that's what you that's how you beat this team. San Francisco did that. St. Mary's did that. Every team that has played Gonzaga, for the most part, has attempted to make them beat them by taking threes. Kentucky chose not to do that, and they got bit because of it. Next question comes from Austin to close out the second segment. He says, just a fun question here. With how much time on the clock were you having second half flashbacks of UW? SC and St. Mary's. Yeah, the whole game. <laughs> I mean, in the first half as well, just constant fear that that would come back, that the the fatigue, especially on a road environment, you've traveled halfway across the country, something you're not used to doing in the middle of the conference play. It's unusual. It's a hyped up environment. It's loud. It's enthusiastic. You know how good this team is. Like, I thought that there was a chance that that would happen. And I mean, to be fair, it did. Kentucky came all the way back from down 12 and took a lead in the second half. But then Gonzaga rebounded from that. And that's the growth that we haven't seen. We've seen it at times. They did it against St. Mary's. They kind of took the punch and then counterpunched and got back out of that game. They didn't quite pull off the victory, but they did it. When San Francisco picked up a bunch of momentum in the final two minutes, Gonzaga still withstood and won barely, but they did. So we have seen that growth from the Santa Clara game, from the St. Mary's game to an extent, from the UW game in particular. So, yes. I was feeling it. You were feeling it. Everybody was feeling it. Everybody was feeling it when Kentucky came from 12 down to five up. Every single person was feeling it. But this team is built different now because they have gone through some of those experiences. And that game on Saturday was proof of that. We got questions about the NCAA tournament. We got questions about conference realignment, referees, and Yvonne Ejim all coming up to close out the show after a word from today's sponsor, FanDuel. Get buckets with your first bet on FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Because right now, new customers can get $150 in bonus bets with any winning $5 bet. That's $150 if your bet wins. So bet on all your favorite NBA players and college basketball players with quick bets, live same-game parlays, exclusive props, and more. And I will continue to say this. The Gonzaga women's team, 24,000 to 1 odds to win the national championship. Yeah, I know a national championship is hard. 24,000 to one, you put five bucks down. If they find a way to win this bad boy, that's 1200 bucks in your pocket. So just visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and shoot your shot. FanDuel, an official sportsbook partner of the NBA. Let's close out the show today with more mailbag questions here. This one comes from Nope, Not Me Too on Discord, who says, If St. Mary's wins out but loses to the Zags in Vegas, do you think the WCC will be a two-bid conference? If yes, would that still hold true if the Zags knock them off at home on March 2nd? I think St. Mary's, if they do not lose another game except to Gonzaga in the WCC tournament, will be a, will be a, a tournament team. I, I, I would be shocked if they weren't. If this St. Mary's team beats Gonzaga again, they beat San Francisco again, they win whatever first round game they play in the WCC tournament, and then they lose to Gonzaga in Vegas, their resume would still be pretty clearly in that at-large consideration. It does get a little dicier if they also lose to Gonzaga on March 2nd, because that would be a home loss for them, and it would be a rough one. If they lose that game and they lose to Gonzaga in Vegas, they would be 4-4 and in quad one games. 
They'd be three and two in quad two games because they would pick up a win against San Francisco, but that would be a home win for them, which would be quad two. Four and four in quad one, three and two in quad two. I think they might sneak in. The Weber State loss would loom pretty large for them at that point, but they got wins over Colorado State. They got some other big wins on their resume. I think they would be close, but they would be sweating. It's kind of the same situation Gonzaga's in. If Gonzaga loses to St. Mary's on March 2nd and they lose to St. Mary's in the WCC tournament, they're going to be sweating pretty darn hard. They're going to be really sweating. So I think both these teams are kind of feeling the same spot, which is what makes these games coming up in March, the two games they're going to play each other in March, really, really impactful because both these teams really can't afford any extra losses if they want to make themselves uh, appear in the big dance. Next question comes from B Brownie0458 on Discord, who says, with all the comps of this Gonzaga team to the 15-16 team, if you had a magic wand and can get a player to transfer to Gonzaga to have a similar impact to what Nigel Williams-Goss had on that team that made the championship the following year, are there any realistic players that come to mind to you? B. Brownie also mentioned Kobe Johnson from USC, who I think definitely fits, but I'm not going to rattle off players who are not currently in the transfer portal. Not something I'm going to do. Did that in the past. Learned my lesson. It, when we get into the offseason and we know who's in the transfer portal, you bet. You bet every single episode from mid-April through probably June will cover the transfer portal. Maybe not every episode, but pretty darn close. Pretty darn close. That will be a huge conversation. Having said that, it's going to be interesting to see how Gonzaga attacks the transfer portal this offseason. Because Anton Watson will be gone, but Ben Gregg will clearly start. Assuming no other departures, which is not something we can fully assume, but if you have Graham E.K., Ben Gregg, Nolan Hickman, Ryan Nemhard, you also have Steel Venters. I don't think Steel Venters is going to not start. I think Steel's the expected starter at the three with Dusty Stromer and Braden Huff coming off the bench, as well as Luka Krajinovich. That's, a, that's an eight-man rotation. I still think Gonzaga looks to pursue something in the transfer portal, but I'm not sure what. Again, that's making the assumption that all these players are back. Do they go out and find like a 2-3 hybrid floor spacer like Kobe Johnson, who that's the role that he would fill? But how similar is that to steel? If it's too similar, that kind of creates problems. You're also pushing Dusty Stromer further down the depth chart. Is that something you want to do entering this year? I think maybe you go find a 3-4 hybrid, someone kind of similar to Anton Watson, at least positionally, who can be that backup to Ben Gregg and kind of that fourth big who can also maybe play some three. That's, I think, what Gonzaga wants Jun Suk Yo to be. He hasn't stepped up to be that guy. If he's back next year, does Gonzaga bring in a transfer over him? What does that do? Like, there's just a lot of complications to this Gonzaga roster. There's also a possibility that players leave that we're not talking about, whether they enter the transfer portal, whether they declare for the NBA draft, although I find that somewhat unlikely, whether they return to a, a different country overseas, which is possible as well. If some if stuff like that happens, then yeah, bring on the transfers. But I, I think Gonzaga has a fairly set starting lineup next year, and I think they're going to have a hard time finding players, super impactful players like a Nigel Williams-Goss. They're not going to find somebody like that if they don't have an, op an obvious open starting spot. Next question here comes from Jeff via Gmail, who says, nine days ago, the Big Ten and SEC announced a combo athletics advisory committee. Could this Big Ten SEC committee give Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark enough leverage to convince the Big 12 schools to embrace his desire to create his basketball super conference, all to ensure the Big 12 can't be left behind regardless of what happens in the Big Ten and the SEC? 
maybe. I just don't know. I, if I knew, I swear I would tell you. If I knew, I would also be telling everybody and probably making a lot of money off of this information. I just don't know. I don't think the Big 12 schools are currently panicking so hard about this Big 10 SEC uh, committee that they're like, I don't think West Virginia and BYU are like, yes, we have to add Gonzaga right now because of this advisory committee. That just seems silly to me. I don't think that that's happening. But if down the line things start to develop a little bit more, maybe, maybe your mark could use this as leverage. I don't know what those conversations are going to look like. I don't know what exactly some of these schools are being held up from inviting Gonzaga. There's just not a lot of information that is really publicly available right now. So this is just not a, a story where there's any insider information. Even if there was insider information, I'm not going to be privy to it. So it's just not something I can really speak to right now. Next question comes from Christian, who says, when will Yvonne Ejim rejoin the Lady Zags? The fact they are rolling without a potential All-American is amazing and definitive statement about their depth. Yeah, Yvonne joined Team Canada from February 8th through the 11th to play with them. Uh, so she should be back for the next game against St. Mary's on the 15th. As I'm recording this on the 11th, she's already she's playing her final game with them right now. Uh, should be back again starting early next week. Uh, yeah, Lady Zags does not have any issues without her. Shocker, shocker. This team is phenomenal. They're continuing to play great. And Yvonne should be back in time for their next game. Next question, second one of the show from Nope Not Me Too on Discord, who says, quite a few of us Zag fans have griped about the officiating this year. Do you think the officiating are truly making more bad calls, or are we just more aware of them because we aren't consistently blowing out the competition, which makes every call more important? Yeah, I'm going to say it's C, which is Gonzaga fans have just always complained about the officials because most sports fans complain about the officials. That's just part of it. I don't think that the complaints about the officials have necessarily gotten worse or like more pronounced. I think that they are because their complaints are coming at the end of close games, which is what you're alluding to in the question. Like, yes, it's going to be more easy to identify a bad call or a no call or whatever late in the close game. Clearly that's going to be the reality. And that's what happened here. We had the, the jump ball call in the Kentucky game, which was just an absolutely awful call. Quite honestly, the fact that Justin Edwards had his arm directly on Nolan Hickman's arm, nowhere near the basketball. I don't know how they got that call wrong, but yeah, that, that call in a 32 point game over Portland with six minutes left is nobody really cares. So I do agree that the closeness of some of these games matters, but I don't necessarily agree with the premise that there's more complaining about officials. We've always, we've always complained about WCC refs. It's just happening in tighter games now. Final question of the show from Christian. He says, if you could pick one song to encapsulate the, the seasons for the Zags and the women's team, what songs would you select? He selects a little respect by Erasure for the Lady Zags and Glorious by Macklemore for the men's team. Uh, I'm going to go with Powerhouse by the Yellow Jackets, a jazz fusion band. That's for the women because they have played like a legitimate powerhouse this season for the men's side. I'm going with a David Bowie and Queen classic under pressure because that, even with the win over Kentucky, is still how this team is feeling, knowing that that NCAA tournament streak is in more jeopardy than it's been in close to a decade. To wrap it up for us today, we will be back on Tuesday talking more about this big win over Kentucky, what it means for Gonzaga going forward. We'll, of course, start getting you ready for the week's games against LMU and Pacific as well, all coming up on future episodes. For now, I want to thank you all for making this show your first listen or your first watch of the day. And until tomorrow, as always, go Zags. <laughs>